0: Today's Bible reading is from 1 Samuel, chapter 5, verse 1, to 7, verse 1. It's a long one, but it's a fascinating narrative, so stick with me. Alright, 1 Samuel, chapter 5, verse 1. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and his hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumors. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us, because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon our God. So they called together all the leaders of the Philistines and asked them, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Have the ark of the God of Israel moved to Gath. So they moved the Ark of the God of Israel. But after they'd moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city. Throwing it into a great panic, he afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumours. So they sent the Ark of God to Ekron. As the Ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought the Ark of the God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, Send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place, or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy on it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumours, and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. When the ark of the Lord had been in the Philistine territory seven months, the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? "'Tell us how we should send it back to its place.' They answered, "'If you return the ark of the God of Israel, "'do not send it back to him without a gift. "'By all means, send a guilt offering to him. "'Then you will be healed, "'and you will know why his hand has not been lifted from you.' The Philistines answered, "'What gift offering should we send to him?' They answered, "'Five gold tumors and five gold rats, "'according to the number of the Philistine rulers, "'because the same plague has struck both you and your rulers.' Make models of the tumors and of the rats that are destroying the country and give glory to Israel's God. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did? When Israel's God dealt harshly with them, did they not send the Israelites out so they could go on their way? Now then, get a new cart ready with two cows that have been carved and have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves away and pen them up. Take the ark of the Lord and put it on the cart, and in a chest beside it, put the gold objects you are sending back to him as a guilt offering. Send it on its way, but keep watching it. If it goes up to its own territory, toward Beth Shemesh, then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. But if it does not, then we will know that it was not his hand that struck us, but that it happened to us by chance. So they did this. They took two such cows and hitched them to the cart and penned up their calves. They placed the Ark of the Lord on the cart and along with it the chest containing the gold rats and the models of the tumors. Then the cows went straight up towards Beth Shemesh, keeping on the road and lowing all the way. They did not turn to the right or to the left. The rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting their wheat in the valley, and when they looked and saw the Ark, they rejoiced at the sight. The ark came to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, and there it stopped beside a large rock. The people chopped up the wood of the cart and sacrificed the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord, together with the chest containing the gold objects, and placed them on the large rock. On that day, the people of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. The five rulers of the Philistines saw all this and then returned the same day to Ekron. These are the gold tumors the Philistines sent as a guilt offering to the Lord, one each for Ashdod, Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. And the number of the gold rats was according to the number of the Philistine towns belonging to the five rulers, the fortified towns, with their country villages. The large rock on which the Levites set the Ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Bethshemesh. But God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the Ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And the people of Beth Shemesh asked, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? Then they sent messages to the people of kiriath Jiram, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your town. So the men of Kiriath-Jeriam came and took up the ark of the Lord. They brought it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to guard the ark of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, please have your Bibles open as we open up God's Word this morning as we continue our series on One Samuel. Now, have you ever come across this poem? It'll be on the screen. It says, "Christ has no body now, but uh, now on earth, but yours. No hands, no feet, but yours. Yours are the eyes with which Christ looks out." with compassion on the world. Yours are the feet with which he is to go about doing good. Yours are the hands with which he is to bless us now. Now this poem was written in the 1500s to motivate and encourage Christians to serve. And it seems to make a lot of sense, doesn't it? Uh, Jesus is in heaven at God's right hand. Where on earth. Uh, Jesus' body isn't on earth, it's in heaven. But we are the body of Christ And so when we pass a homeless man on the streets, our eyes are the eyes with which Jesus looks on him with compassion. When a person stumbles and falls in front of us and drops all their papers, well, our hands are the hands with which Jesus lends them a hand. When we see an elderly person struggling to cross the road, our feet are the feet with which Jesus will walk with them. Is that how you understand how God works in this world? If Jesus is going to do any good in this world, he'll do it through you and me, with our hands and our feet. Now, if that's how we think that God works in the world, then we're going to struggle with today's passage. Because you might remember the terrible situation Israel finds themselves in in last week's passage. Not only did they lose the battle once, but twice against the Philistines. Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, the priests of God, are now all dead. And the Ark of the Covenant has been captured. That is, Israel is in a world of trouble. God, as it were, has been captured. The leadership is dead. And over 30,000 families in Israel are now without a husband or father, a son or a child. And so what hope is left for God's people, how would Abraham's promises be fulfilled? It appears that God needs rescuing, and Israel's in no position to do any rescuing. And so, what's going to happen? Who are going to be the hands and feet of God now? Now, if the Israelites return home with their flags flying at half-mast, the Philistines return home with their trophy as the news was broadcast. Dagon, the god of Philistines, have defeated Yahweh, the god of Israel. And so as it was customary at that time, the Philistines placed the sacred Ark of the Covenant in their own sacred temple at the feet of their own god, Dagon. So we see this in chapter 5, verse 1. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. Now Dagon was the most revered god of the Philistines. He was a half-man, half-fish pagan idol. And they worshipped him as the god of vegetation and fertility. And because the Philistines won the battle and captured the Ark, it was clear as day that their God, Dagon, was much more powerful than Israel's God. And so they put the Ark of the Covenant in Dagon's temple like it was a trophy. At the foot of Dagon was Yahweh now as his footstool. But the next morning when the Philistines walk into the temple, they find Dagon has fallen off his perch with his face in the dirt. Verse 3. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next morning, there was Dagon, fallen on his face, face, on the ground before the ark of the Lord. The Philistines don't find the ark of the covenant at Dagon's feet. They find Dagon laying at the foot of the ark. That is, Yahweh isn't Dagon's footstool, but Dagon is bowing down to Yahweh. But that's not the only irony in the story. Even though Dagon's meant to be this powerful and awesome God, who even managed to defeat the God of Israel in battle, you notice that he can't even stand himself back up. Verse 3, they took Dagon. The people had to carry their God and put him back in his place. And so the Philistines pick him up like a lump of wood and prop him back. But that didn't last long because the next morning when they came in, the the Philistines discover their God, Dagon, bowing before the Ark of the Covenant again. But this time it's worse. Verse 4. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. His head and his hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. So if anyone thought that Dagon had simply lost his balance the first time, they would be left with no doubt now what was happening the second time. This was no mere accident. This was an act of God. And this time, not only was Dagon laying prostrate before the Ark of the Covenant, his hands and his feet, we're told, are broken off. Not because of the fall, because literally in the Hebrew, it actually says that they had been cut off, chopped off. You see... Can you can you begin to now see already the self-sufficiency of God Almighty? He doesn't need help to stand up like Dagon, nor did he need the hands and feet of Israel to rescue him from the hands of the Philistines. He can do it with or without them. The God of the Israelites is not a helpless God needing to be cuddled and dusted, protected and rescued. The God of the Bible makes very clear that he is most powerful, most awesome. And Dagon is but a lump of wood, absolutely powerless and impotent before the mighty God of Israel. Yet the Philistines are slow to learn. Look at verse 5. That is why, to this day, neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. The Philistines miss the point completely. Rather than turning to the God of Israel in worship and throwing Dagon into the tip, they established superstitious rules to revile their God even more. And Christianity is not immune to this either. A couple of days ago, I came across a forum, and a person asked this question. If I keep a cross in my room, and I happen to wake up at 3 a.m. to use the restroom, which is in a separate room from my bedroom where the cross is hung, would God still protect me from the devil? Now, I'm not sure if you've ever thought of hanging a cross around your house to protect yourself from the devil, because a lot of people do that. Uh, In fact, a lot of people don't just use the cross as jewellery or for fashion, but they might even wear a cross around their neck because it gives them a sense of protection, of God's protection. Well, one one reply to the question hits the nail on its head. Jim Condit wrote, Nope, you're doomed. You need to line both walls with crosses and sprinkle holy water and salt down the hall if you expect any chance at all. Now, I take that Jim is being sarcastic, right? He is showing the folly of superstition and of using a symbol for protection rather than seeking God himself. You see, friends, we need to remember that we don't bow down to an idol. We bow down to the one and only living God. We don't worship a wooden cross who needs our help We worship the one who conquered the cross and offers us help. But God's power wasn't just felt within the confines of Dagon's temple. God's heavy hand was felt throughout the land of the Philistines. Verse 6. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He, He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumors. The ark might have fallen into the hands of the Philistines, but the Philistines had fallen into the hands of Yahweh. Ever since they captured the Ark of the Covenant, it was one bad news after another. If it wasn't bad enough that Dagon has lost its head, the people were now stricken with tumors. And so they wanted to get rid of the Ark in verse 7. Verse 7, when the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, the Ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon our God. And that's exactly what they tried to do. They called a meeting and decided to move the ark to Gath in verse 8. But the people of Gath ended up with tumours too in verse 9. And so they passed the buck, They sent it to Ekron in verse 10. But by this time it was pretty clear they were under attack. Not by the hands and feet of the Israelite soldiers, but by God Almighty. And they realized they were helpless. And the best thing they could do was to surrender. To surrender to Israel's God. And so they call a meeting. They decide to give the ark back and to send it back to Israel. Verse 11. They called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, Send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or you will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy on them. Uh, another story I read a few days ago was about Abraham Lincoln's son, Robert Lincoln. Uh, apparently, he was present at three presidential assassinations. Not one, not two, but three presidential assassinations. President Abraham Lincoln himself in 1865, President James Garfield in 1881, and President William McKinley in 1901. But, but that's nothing more than a mere coincidence, isn't it? Uh, or take Viola Jessup. Uh, she was a nurse and an ocean liner stewardess. She was on board three ships that were shipwrecked. And she became known as Miss Unsinkable. Because somehow she managed to survive all three. The Olympic in nineteen eleven, the Titanic in nineteen twelve, and the Britannic in nineteen sixteen. I'm not sure whether she kept her job after that one. But Surely that's nothing more than a coincidence either, isn't it? As far as we know, Robert Lincoln had nothing to do with the presidential assassinations. And Violet Jessup had nothing to do with shipwrecks. And, and that's what we might say about the troubles in, the, in Philistine, that, that, that what had happened in Dagon was a mere coincidence, that the tumors in the cities where the Ark of the Covenant went was a mere coincidence, Nothing more, nothing less. So he, so were the uh, were the Philistines simply being a bit superstitious? Were they fallaciously attributing these disasters to Israel's God out of convenience and not hard evidence? Well, in case it was a mere coincidence, they devise a plan to put the theory to bed. They ask their priests how to return the Ark of the Covenant in verse two of chapter six, and the priests respond from verse three to nine. And what they come up with is actually a really clever plan. They test God to see if God will make the impossible possible. And the Jesus of it is this. They have to get a new cart and two cows in verse 7. Now these two cows can't be any cows. There are two conditions. They must have just had their calves. They must have just given birth and they must never have been yoked. And so these two cows, these young cows, wouldn't want to go anywhere because they've just had their young. And so they want to stay with their calves. They want to be there to feed them and protect them, not to leave them and forsake them. And since they've never been yoked, it means that they've never worked a day in their life. It means that they've never been taught to listen to instruction. It means that they don't know how to cooperate and work with another cow that they're yoked with. And so these two cows are going to have to leave their newborn calves behind and work for the very first time. You can already imagine how difficult this is going to be, can't you? They're going to be yoked together, these two cows, and they're going to pull a cart that's heavy. It's going to have the Ark of the Covenant on it and another uh, a box of gold tumors and rats. And they're going to pull a cart not just down the street, like a straight street, like Bowen Street, from one end to the other. No, they're going to pull the cart about 10 kilometers through open terrain to the next closest city of Israel that borders the Philistines, which is Beth Shemesh. Now, to to really appreciate how difficult this is, imagine you had to do that. Say you're a new mum. And and you've just had a baby. And you've only ever lived within the confines of this building. You've never stepped foot outside of this building. And you've just had a baby. And your baby is crying for milk. And you've just been told, leave the building, make your way to Federation Square, which is about 10 kilometers away. Without a GPS, without a phone, completely unaided. It would be completely out of character for you to leave your crying baby to exit this building and to even know which direction to start heading, wouldn't it? It'd be impossible. And so the test for the cows to do something completely unnatural and impossible is what the Philistines want to do so that they can see if this was a mere coincidence or was it really an act of the living God. So verse 9, If it goes to its own territory, toward Beth Shemesh, then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. But if it does not, then we will know that it was not his hand that struck us, but that it happened to us by chance. You see, the Philistines' plan was so strongly stacked in one direction that only the power of God could bring about a different outcome. And so if, if the impossible happens, then the Philistines will know that the disasters they had ha- suffered ever since they took possession of the Ark of the Covenant wasn't a coincidence, but because they had offended the God of Israel. But if the cows did what normal cows would do and refused to leave their young, and would not cooperate and work with another cow. Then the Philistines could safely know that it all was a coincidence. And so what happened? Or well, verse 12. The cows went straight up toward Beth Shemesh, keeping on the road and lowing all the way. And get this, they did not turn to the right or to the left. The rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Beth The cows left their young. The cows knew exactly where to go. And the cows returned the Ark of the Covenant to the people of God. The Ark of the Covenant was in the hands of the Philistines for seven months. And the Philistines and the Israelites thought that their God had been defeated. Israel had lost the battles one after another to the Philistines. The, their priests have been killed. There is now no leadership in Israel. And worse of all, the Ark of the Covenant was captured. Their God had departed from them. And then out of the blue, verse 13, now the people of Beshemesh were harvesting their wheat in the valley, and when they looked up and saw the ark, they rejoiced at the sight. And so what were the hands and feet of God's people doing? They were harvesting. They weren't rescuing God. But how did the Ark of the Covenant return? By the power of God. Against all odds, the cows brought the Ark back to Israel. For the Philistines this confirmed that the affliction they had suffered was at the hands of the God of Israel. But for the Israelites, it was a moment of great celebration. Verse 14, the people chopped up the wood of the cart and sacrificed the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. You see, friends, God was far from being defeated. God was sovereignly ruling over everyone and everything. Teresa Avila was born in Spain. She entered a Carmelite convent when she was 18. Eventually, she founded a convent herself and wrote the book, The Way of Perfection for Her Nuns. She became known as a mystic, a reformer, and a writer. In fact, TV series and movies have been made in her name. And she's none other than the author of the poem I read at the start. Christ has no body but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Now, on face value, we can see why this poem is so famous, can't we? It encourages Christians to serve, to show compassion, to actively live for Jesus and to do the work of Jesus through us. But when we consider the poem more carefully, we might notice that it implies that God can only work, that God can only save, that God can only care for the poor through us, through his people, through his church. That is, to put it simply, God needs us. God depends on us. And without us, nothing's going to get done. No one's going to be served and no one's going to be saved. This is reflected in Teresa's practice of carrying a portable statue of baby Jesus, a little idol that she would carry wherever she went. It's almost like she had her own little Dagon who needed to be cradled. But as we've seen in today's passage, God doesn't need our hands and feet. He's pretty amazing without it. When God's Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines, the Israelites didn't even lift a finger to rescue God from the Philistines. God was capable of it himself. He didn't need bows and arrows, nor did he need swords and spears. Yet he beheaded Dagon, and he had the entire nation of the Philistines trembling at their knees. And even he is the one who brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel all on his own and where were God's people? Nowhere to be seen. What were they doing? Harvesting. You see, God is supremely capable of accomplishing his purposes all on his own, even without us. And today's passage is a great reminder for us, especially as we seek to build God's church here. We need to keep remembering that God doesn't depend on us to build His church. Because Jesus will build His church. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus says to His disciples, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. You see, Jesus says, I will build my church, not you will. Not me. But Jesus will. And of course, Jesus is referring to his universal church and not every local church. But it implies it applies to us here too, doesn't it? For we are part of the universal church. And so if we want to see God's church built, we must remember that Jesus is the one who will do it. When the people were hungry, Jesus is the one who fed them. When the storm raged... And they feared for their lives. Jesus is the one who calmed it. And when the sacrifice for sin was needed, Jesus is the one who offered it. And so as we seek to do the work of the gospel here, we need to remember not what we can do for God, but what God has done for us. You see, it's so easy and tempting to feel indispensable as though God needs us and depends on us. And and we love to feel that way, don't we? I mean, who doesn't want to feel needed and valued? Who doesn't want to feel important and useful? But the hands and feet that matter most aren't our hands and feet, but the hands and feet that were nailed to the tree. You see, the motivation to do good in this world, to show compassion to the faint-hearted, to proclaim the gospel to the lost, isn't because if we don't do it, then God can't do it. It must be because God has done it. God will do it. And so we want to be part of it. It's because Jesus has looked upon us with compassion and saved us from our sins that should motivate us to have compassion for our friends and family so that they might share in the hope of the resurrection with us. You see, friends, it's a subtle difference, but it's a significant difference. His victory does not depend on you or me any more than it depended on the people of Bethshemesh to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to the Promised Land. Indeed, we are unworthy even to eat the crumbs from under his table. Yet God saves us and chooses to use us to serve him and to serve his church. And we respond in love and count it as a privilege to serve him. Because he's not a powerless idol who can't even stand on his own two feet. He's the Lord of lords and King of kings. He has conquered the grave for you and me and caused us to follow him. And so, friends, to God alone be the glory forever and ever. Amen.